Welcome to Watershed's May podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. Um, and also delighted to be joined by Steph Reed, who is the MA curation placement at Watershed this year. Some of you might not know, some of you might know, but we work with the University of West of England on a number of projects, and, and one of them is with their MA in curation which has been going for a few years now. And what happens in that is that the students are studying curation, but also spend time on placement in various arts organisations across Bristol and indeed further afield, including Hauser and Worth Gallery in Bruton, the Cathedral in Cheltenham, organisations in Cardiff. And it's really grown, and I think, a fantastic way in which kind of university and sort of cultural organisations uh, working together for mutual benefit. And this year, as I say, we're joined by Steph at Watershed. So welcome, Steph, to the podcast and welcome to uh, Watershed. So you, you started in January. Just tell us a bit about, um, well, what led you to doing the MA in curation and then a bit about what you are kind of studying and working on. Yeah, well, I did my undergrad here in philosophy at University of Bristol and really loved the city and fell in love with Watershed through going to a lot of cinema screenings during my degree here. And then after graduating, I started getting involved with like the Bristol Palestine Film Festival and putting on, you know, events there, helping with the programming and decided it was something I really wanted to pursue further and applied to the MA. I was very happy to get the uh, Watershed placement here. <laughs> but it's a great course because um, there's... You know, it's a small cohort, it's like 10 students and we're all spread across different kind of um, institutions, like you mentioned, Mark. Like, so there's Arnold Feeney, you know, there's people more focused on archival stuff and museums and people focused on galleries. And I know in past years, there's been people with a focus on short films, working with encounters. Yeah. So there's a great spread of kind of disciplines, um, which, you know, leads to some really interesting group projects too and different kind of practices among the group. I- I was going to say, so do you do you work together on putting exhibitions of work together? So far, we've had a speculative group project, but yeah, next next term we'll be putting on a short film evenings, which we're really looking forward to curating. It'll be great. But yeah, I mean, over the course, you you know, we study archive programming, audience development, all kinds of aspects of it, which is a really well-rounded kind of insight. For me, historically, it's kind of not a thing that's associated with film so much or cinema. Cinema's seen very much as a very now sort of medium with no past. (laughs) It's all about the new release, but what's been great about the partnership as well is that, you know, increasingly we are dealing with, you know, a kind of whole history of film. Um, And so to have that in the mix, I think, of curation you know it's a really um progressive thing to be doing you know as you say with encounters you know there's incredible selections of short films and increasingly sort of i'm going to use the word content and i'm really sorry about <laughs> saying that already but there's a great range of work that i think increasingly in bristol is being in quotes curated so it's good to see that happening as part of the ma as well yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, local art collectives that tend to be like working in the kind of short film area now as well and putting those on in like kind of alternative venues around the city, which is really cool to see. And one of the things that you'll be doing is delivering a project at Watershed. Um, the course mm-hmm. runs January to December, so you'll be delivering your own curated project at Watershed. And have you got any ideas as to the directions of travel of, of that? 
Watch the space. I think is the answer well, to that well, right now. <laughs> watch this. We shall we shall revisit in the months in in the months ahead. But on to May program, and just to say for the the placement that you are working with me on, you know, aspects of the program on on the delivery of it, and just getting your head round, you know, what we do at Watershed in terms of putting the program together and we've got me that we're talking about and you I know you've seen some of the films whether through ICO screening days or increasingly um we're getting screeners um which we watch um which we kind of watch on on computers which I'm always a little bit have mixed feelings about because I'm very much of the school of these are films for the cinema. It was like a very different kind of experience of watching it. It is, but you know, um, needs needs must, and actually you can get to see a range of what. So you've seen a few screeners. We're going to talk about some of the films coming up. First up was um, it really quite interestingly. uh, There's two films that deal in very different ways with childhood. The first is the Norwegian chilling supernatural horror, The Innocents. And the other one is very different, Irish film, The Quiet Girl, which won an award in, in Berlin a couple of years back. And actually, The Innocence was, was screened in Cannes. So strong kind of pedigree in terms of festivals. But very different, two very different depictions of childhood, mm. Steph, yeah? Yeah, for sure. I mean, The Innocence, yeah, such eerie, naturalistic performances from the kids. And I mean, for a bit of background, it's focused on a group of children on part of a housing estate, right, or well, like a block of flats, and as they go out to play and the kind of friendships that they start to form there. But of course, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that they've uh, got some interesting powers going on. I'm hesitant to call them superpowers because this is clearly not a superpower film or superhero type film. It's more like looking at how those kind of abilities can impact their group dynamic and the power structures that exist within those childhood yeah. relationships, I think. It reminded me of the Village of the Damned and, you know, the John Wyndham's Midwich Cuckoos. That was, I mean, the Village mm. of the Damned. In that thing whereby a group of children can seem very innocent, mm. <laughs> but can also be very eerie when you start seeing sort of similarities between them, which, of course, was, was the Village of the Damned. It was a similar sort of thing where children realise that they can kind of communicate. And I thought it was interesting that it was very much that sort of child's eye view where the adult world is very, the very separate, the adult world in the in the children's world, you know, and, and it's that thing when you're an adult and it's like, oh, let the kids go off and play, mm. you know, but you don't really get involved because the kids are playing, but actually this is a kind of, let's look at what the children are playing at. And actually it's let's very... Let's find out what they're getting up to. <laughs> exactly what they're getting up to. Um, I think it was quite similar to Playground in that respect that we showed here like last month in terms of that, focus on like explicitly on the children and really being inside their world how adults barely figure in that scenario they're kind of on the periphery which I think is also I don't know reminded me a bit of um Celine Siama's tomboy in terms of seeing how those kind of what the kids get up to (laughs) as soon as they're allowed out to play but this really takes it into a kind of supernaturally yeah. horror. And um, I think we have to, a warning for any cat lovers out there. that they, <laughs> Children can do nasty things. But I think it is that realisation and the director, Tereski Vogt, who I hadn't realised um, until I was doing a bit of research, but he's actually written The Worst Person in the World with uh, Joaquin Trier, which has been a recent huge success for us. And also more, he's worked very closely actually with 
working through your own his, his films. And this is his, he's obviously kind of stepped into directing. But he says, you know, he wanted to explore in a quote, a secret space between kids that adults don't have access to. I think kids are beyond good and evil, or rather before good and evil. And it's that innocence in the way in which you, everything is approached innocently, but actually when you sort of step over that line and, you know, the film kind of obviously explodes that. But it is done, I think you're right, that kind of parallel with Playground and this sort of depiction of the kind of ch- child world of the Playground. It's a very different mood and it's a very, mm. um, I mean, I think it's in CinemaScope and it's very lush. Um, you know, the setting is, whilst it's kind of like what we would say is a council estate, but it's in this countryside setting that's really quite idyllic and it's very sunny and it's very bright but then there's just this undercurrent of threat mm, as they like test the boundaries of as they push the boundaries yeah, <laughs> yeah. and some some brilliant visual style that's going on I mean it really mm. uses the very stylistic so you know certainly very recommended but with a caution to animal lovers the Irish film I mentioned The Quiet Girls very very different depiction it's set in rural Ireland in the 1980s and it's a, a young girl whose parents have, have already got, she's the youngest, her parents have already got sort of four or five older children. The mother's pregnant. They can't really look after everybody. This young girl is given on to a, a, an aunt to be looked after. And it's a very different atmosphere and a de- very different um, depiction of childhood. Yeah, because they're much more of an isolated experience and that kind of other sides of the coin of aside from those social bonds that the kids form when they're allowed out to play, you've then got that like when there's no one to play with and what that kind of does to the child. <laughs> yeah, it's that thing where when children know that there's something up with adults, you know, mm. that adults are concealing something from them. She becomes more and more aware of the kind of dysfunction that's her own set up, but also the kind of secrets and lies, I think, of... There's also a very tender thing about bonds and about relationships. Actually, maybe your maybe your mum and dad aren't the people that love you the most, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting, as well as it just being a what I felt was a very sort of accurate and honest depiction of 1980s Ireland, actually. Really beautifully shot as well. Every frame is like gorgeous of that. And it's very restrained. It really mm. builds. You know, there is that sort of classic sort of generational thing about you don't show children any emotion you don't show children Mm. any physicality and there's lovely scenes where she begins to build up a relationship with her her uncle who just can't really communicate the film reveals why he can't communicate so well and why you know what what's kind of lying underneath it all but yeah in a very very beautifully understated film so another thing that um is, is is coming up that we do regularly is dock and roll which is partnership with Doc and Roll, which brings documentaries on music to to Bristol. In fact, the Doc and Roll guys take it all around the UK and some really great documentaries that they've brought to us. And you've, you've been kind of uh, nursing this one along, Steph. What have Doc and Roll got this month? We've got three films on towards the end of the month. We've got Love and Bright Landscapes about Dave McComb and the Triffids, which really like kind of reveals more of that story that's not often told. The Triffids never really have stuck in the popular consciousness as much as, as maybe they should have. And this documentary really tries to kind of tell that tale of how they moved over and into the, more of the mainstream at the time and why maybe they're not as recognised now. Um, and then we've got In a Silent Way about Talk Talk. Talk Talk from um, Mark Hollis notoriously declined a lot of interview requests all the way up until his death in 2019. 
and the rest of the band are also quite reticent about you know appearing in a documentary in that way so this is kind of an interesting project in that they've tried to make a documentary about the making of Talk Talk's um, you know arguably seminal album Spirit of Eden you know over 30 years after its release without using any of the music or direct footage of it and they build a really interesting picture of you know talking to their collaborators exploring yeah. kind of the, the, the cultural scene that led to that album that's quite a challenge isn't it if you're yeah, not, exactly. not, if you're not like, access to um i think they pulled it off but yeah. yeah i agree it's not the easiest way of making something there's also the karen dalton documentary in my own time and she was you know a great source of inspiration to a lot of other artists and especially in the folk scene like dylan and then later like nick cave and angel olsen as well who provides the voice for the memoirs in the uh the yeah. documentary. That, I mean, that's one I'm, I'm really looking forward to because I wasn't aware mm. of Cam Dalton at all. And this is one of the great things that Doc and Roll do is they access these often overlooked names, you know, and say Cam Dalton and her influence in that world. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, she's definitely always been one that is, there's like basically no archive footage or it's very hard to find any recordings of her performances or anything. So they've really, you know, in this doc, they've really managed yeah. to piece together a really interesting picture. Definitely one I'll be I'll be seeking out. And there are, there are some pre-recorded interviews with some of the filmmakers for those that will be that will be screened alongside them. And we should also mention, not as part of Doc and Roll, but very much related to that genre, is um, we're screening the Nick Cave Warren Ellis documentary, which is the latest and credible documentaries that have been made around Nick Cave and indeed Warren Ellis. And this is them in the recording studio recently. And it's probably going to be very sold out. So I would get your tickets quickly if you've not got them already. That's on the 11th of May. I mean, this is really kind of up close and personal, as it were, in terms of, you know, the stories. And I was kind of wanting a lot more of uh, Warren and Nick talking together about their creative practice. Mm. And there are some there are some brilliant moments, but it's it's... It's mainly them in this incredible studio. I mean, Marianne Faithful drops mm. in. Um, really. as And there's a gospel choir up here. But it's very intimate in terms of them making music. And, I mean, let's face it, they are probably, I mean, they're up there in terms of just the sheer kind of volume of brilliant creative work that they mm. continue to make, both as their own music, but also um, soundtracks which, of course, speaking of which, into the beginning of May is The Velvet Queen, which is a brilliant um, documentary on um, two guys in search of the very elusive snow leopard in the Mongolian uh, mountains. It's not like your natural history documentary. It's, it's, it's kind of more about a sort of meditation on... Um, humans' relationship with nature, but how they are very close to nature, but they become much closer and more reveals their in awness of nature. Yeah, it was it, Warren Ellis has done the score for it, and I think Nick Cave probably couldn't stop himself from... I'll write, you, I'll, I'll write you a wee song, which, which is just... I mean, when you, if you look at the trailer, I mean, the film's got it all, but if you just look at the trailer, it's such a kind of brilliant use of their music. Yeah, for sure. And the way it comes in as well at the, you know, key moments when you spot finally an animal and you get this Nick Cave kind of voice floating in, it works so well. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, well, it's full of absolutely like breathtaking shots, the kind of landscape they were shooting in. Yeah. And the way they look at the way that animals fit within that, I mean, it's... Well, awesome. it's, that, it's that way when you're in nature that you've, you've really got to look. You've got to stop mm. and you have to look. If you're going to see 
um, you really have to stop and look. And, and of course, the camouflage and everything that animals have evolved, mm. the more you stop and look, the more you begin to see. It is quite mesmerising. But also there's a kind of, you know, there is a kind of mystical sort of spiritual quality to it, which, of course, is completely amplified by, by the music. Mm. And then one that I don't think either of us have seen, uh, Earwig. Not yet, no. Not yet, but it is Warren Ellis that's done the music. Yeah, yeah, produced the score for it. Just the score for it. Earwig is uh, the new film from Lucille Hazialalovich, who is, you know, I think has been been making some of the kind of most intriguing and also disturbing European films for a good few years now. And this one, certainly from the trailer and on paper, it seems it's going to be as weird and disturbing as she can be. And as we say, is is scored by Warren Ellis. And the other thing about the director is that she was, if not still is, I'm unsure when I've been doing my research, partner with Gaspar Noe. When you see them, when you know their work and you see that they've got together, that must have been kind of one dinner party. I also think Gaspar Noe is one of the sort of maverick, agent provocateurs of cinema. And I, I really do love his work, but also quite repelled by some of the <laughs> sort of territory that he's dealt with. I am very much looking forward to Vortex again. One of the things about COVID is that I've not been able to go to as many film festivals as I would normally go to. And so I've not really been able to keep up with a lot of the work. And these are two films and, and two directors that I would definitely have sought out in their various festival screenings. And so very much looking forward to catching up with them this month. Mm. Especially following Climax, which I thought was a definitely one to experience in the cinema. Both of the directors are kind of brilliantly cinematic. The work really does get accentuated and come more alive in the cinema. I, get, I mean, I saw Climax in Cannes at one of its first screenings, um, must have been two, three years ago, and it was at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I, it was it was an incredible experience. I mean, really um, one of those kind of visceral experiences where you stumble out into the daylight and think <laughs> and think to yourself how am I going to progress with a kind of normal how day can I carry on with my day yeah. <laughs> oh, exactly 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 very intrigued by his um split screen approach for this new one though vortex I mean I think he tried that with a there was a 50 60 ish minute film he made a year or two ago I think where he kind of did that same kind of approach of having Two screens simultaneously, you know, on the within the and frame. Which... Because he's always kind of pushing at those edges mm. of film and, and cinema. And also he's exploring what's becoming a very topical thread in contemporary cinema, which is about dementia and end of life being explored. And and you know, Michael Haneke's um done that in Amur. The father, of course, mm. was was a, yeah, a recent success. And then Francois Ozon's Everything Went Fine. Again, exploring it, and I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that when it's coming up in June, but Francois Ozon does it in a fantastically sort of witty, um, Mm. scabrous, (laughs) but still dealing with it in a very uh, honest, honest way. And it's a a subject that, of course, is becoming more prominent, uh, relevant. I think directors are you know, very much tackling that. And Vortex is another example. But talking about everything, everything, everywhere, all at once, which we're screening this month. This is the new film with Michelle Yeoh uh, by the Daniels, which seems to have created the multiverse within itself, where a, a kind of ordinary-ish 
working laundromat woman realizes that she can be everywhere all the time at once um, and how she deals with that is what the film is about and it's been described as life-giving chaos it's one of those films that was it going to go online was it going to go on streaming was it going to get a release was it this everybody was talking about it the trailers were out everybody was asking me when was i going to show the bloody thing i just had no idea it's not it's not it's not getting a release it's not being distributed it's not and then suddenly it's it's been released and it's opening in the 13th well i mean it had such an amazing success on opening in the us Um, i mean i think initially it opened in like 38 theaters or something yeah a really limited run and then it expanded to you know over a thousand screens the following week it just like blew up it's really tapped into something and obviously Mm. um a24 have thought oh hang on a minute this has got you, you know cinema life in it and yeah delighted to be showing that on on the 13th so finally just to wrap up Coming to the end of the podcast, I would point people also to a couple of restorations that are happening um, that were screening this month, and that is Bob Fosse's 1972 Cabaret and Mike Hodge's absolutely stone dead classic 1971 British Get Carter. Get Carter is is without doubt one of the sort of really great British films. If you thought about British film from the 70s as being quite kind of social realist heavy and quite sort of worthy, then you, you, you'd you be mistaken because Get Carter kind of takes that and, and turns it into a kind of hard-boiled thriller with Michael Caine journeying from London to Newcastle to seek revenge for the, the killing of his brother. It's just an extraordinary depiction, capturing rather of Newcastle in, in the 70s and the kind of rawness of it but also just the kind of brutality of gangland violence, a kind of brutal depiction of a kind of terminal decline, I guess, in some ways of the, the UK was about to kind of spin into. And just a, a fantastic performance from Michael Caine. And the the music, the score by Roy Budd, which is which is just extraordinary. Um, a really fantastic film that, like we were saying earlier, deserves to be seen in the in the cinema and is actually the kind of starting points for what led to the Long Good Friday lock stock and two smoking barrels and that whole kind of style of gang films but has never been better in my view and then of course Cabaret the great choreographer and director Bob Fosse the film adaptation of Christopher Isherwood's writings about Weimar Germany uh, which has just um, been revived in stage um, to great acclaim in London and this is you know Lisa Minnelli Joe Gray in that sort of decadent post-World War One Germany that gave rise to all sorts of fantastic creativity, but with the increasing dark shadow of fascism that was about to happen. So whilst people might remember it for life is a cabaret, old chum, and, you know, kind of jolly songs, it's actually a very dark film about the impending rise of Nazism. Again, another extraordinary film, and great that these have been restored and, and put back out into cinemas. And finally, just another film that you should try and see that we've got is Terence Davis's Benediction. Terence Davis is another fantastic British filmmaker who can sometimes be overlooked, a bit like Mike Hodges, director of Get Carter. It can be sometimes overlooked. And Terence Davis, you know, his early work with Long Day Closes and Distant Voices Still Lives, actually brilliant depictions of childhood 
those films, but Davis really draws on his, his working-class Catholic Liverpool background in those films, but also his love of creativity, his love of the arts, his love of musicals, in fact, and has gone on to make some great films about creative people. And in Benediction, he visits um, Siegfried Sassoon, the World War poet, relationship with Wilfred Owen, but more about Siegfried Sassoon. And again, it's a, it's a great portrait of tortured creativity but brilliantly realised in the way that really only Terence Davis can. And I was thinking about when he came into, when he was making those early films, he was there alongside Derek Jarman, Peter Greenaway, Sally Potter, you know, and there was Terence Davis. And when you think about that, it's such a kind of extraordinary creative moment in that kind of 80s British cinema. Great to have filmmaker of Terence Davis's stature with a new film. So I would urge everybody to go and see that. So plenty of cinema coming up this month. Do get along to see some of it. And thank you very much, Steph Reed, for joining me in this podcast. Thank you. That's all for this month.